name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Although I'm primarily known as a sea angler, living inland as I do some 20 miles or so from the coast, like a lot of young anglers, my earliest encounters with fish were almost exclusively in fresh water. And in part, due to where and how we fished, we'd encounter quite a lot of small eels which would destroy our terminal rigs and understandably were duly detested as a result. In short, eels were seen as a nuisance. Yet now, incredibly, some 50 years on, most anglers would be hard-pressed to accidentally catch even one eel. Such is the pressure the species are currently under in 2013. Sandwiched between these two extreme positions is a group of specialist anglers who have, in publicity terms, for the most part, been quietly going about the business of understanding and catching big eels, with overnight vigils around lakes and ponds rumoured to contain fish that have slipped in by their own devices, wax fat, and must be encountered before that fateful urge to breed takes hold, more of which we'll talk about later. To guide us through this intriguing story, I'm in the company of eel fishing specialist Brian Crawford on quite a miserable July morning sat in his caravan on a particularly busy site at Martin just outside Blackpool. So apologies for any background noise interference. Now you have both fished for and written about big eels extensively since the mid-1950s, including the two books Catch More Eels and Fishing for Big Eels. Why then the fascination with a species of fish which most of the freshwater anglers would be only too happy if they never encountered one again in their entire lives? Well, one followed the other really because as a very young lad living in Fleetwood and fishing in a lot of ponds around Fleetwood I encountered quite a few eels, a lot of them small ones to start with but then I started to hit some really big ones and it's a world of difference between big eels and little eels and I just like the challenge because um, I've always liked to be different in lots of ways and lots of my friends were going for tench or carp or bream or other species and not many was going for eels so I thought I'd have a go at eels and there was only the National Anguilla Club in those days as a club for people who liked to fish for eels or eel specialists so I applied to fish that and I wasn't very political at that time although I was a member of the local specimen group just to be among like-minded people really but once I got into the National Anguilla Club they'd had a few problems with secretaries and things so and they wanted a new secretary so I volunteered to try the job as secretary and really it spiralled from there I got into representing the National Anguilla Club at um, National Anguilla Council meetings and various other meetings and regional meetings and the the more you did it the more you got involved and it, it and just start acquiring committees one after the other. In your time at the National Anguilla Club, you was also responsible for the compilation of a top 50 big eel list, and went on to be made a life member of the club until 2002, when for want of a better phrase, they kicked you out. What's the story there? Well, starting with the uh, top 50 eel list, because of conflict of interest to a large extent between at that time I was chairman of the National Association of Specialist Anglers and a lot of our members were not happy with the British record fish list, especially the course list obviously and uh, I knew Peter Tomlinson at the time because I lived in Peterborough and I used to work with him part time on various uh, education in angling issues 
because he was secretary of the British Rod Court uh, Fish Committee and we had conflict of interest because there were fish that we knew were being caught but because they didn't tick all the boxes of the National Council they were not accepted as records so there's quite an anomaly of fish that specialist anglers accepted because they knew the people who caught these fish and then the accepted record. So we set up our own actual course fish record committee and as part of that trying to be historical inaccuracy of compiling the known fish that could be verified I began to start doing top 50 lists in all the species of fish. I started with eels because I'd been keeping eel records for about 20-30 years from what was published in the papers and books and from people who I knew who had sent me photographs and accounts of the fish they caught so I was able to start a top 50 eel list and this was published in various angling magazines, monthly ones and as a result other groups were asking me to help them compile a top 50 for their species and uh, within a few years we got a top 50 list for all fish species which has been carried on ever since. And the exit from the club? Well, I've always been uh, a person who speaks my mind. That's why I'm on committees. I don't go on committees just to sit there and drink the coffee, eat the biscuits. I go there because I think I might have something to offer. And because I've been a member of the Anguilla Club, National Anguilla Club, since 1968, and I'd helped it and steered it through many difficult times. Several times I was secretary, chairman, treasurer, and public relations officer, and records officer, doing all the jobs because the membership had dropped to various, there was always quite a few controversies in the National Anguilla Club because obviously a lot of the night fishing is done on your own and it's night time and you start reporting eels but you don't have photographs and we did have voluntary members that we felt was pulling strings and telling lies and not being quite truthful about what they were catching and so some members who were that way inclined decided to leave so we had a fall off in membership and I carried the club quite a few times through very difficult times so I felt very strongly about the club and I always wanted it to continue and in the, the late 90s when I decided I wanted to move to France to live I was president of the National Anguilla Club at that time and at the annual general meeting just before we went my wife and I went to live in France I said to the AGM all the members there I said I'm going to live in France I am your president but if you're happy I'll continue, if you're not, I'll stand down and you can let somebody else. And it was unanimous that wanted me to carry on as president, even though I'll be living in France for an undetermined length of time. So we moved to France, and three years later, as an AGM, I was voted out and somebody else was voted in. And the person they voted in as president had had a very dubious past. He himself had been kicked out of the Anguilla Club in the early 70s and rejoined in the late 80s and by people who had no idea of his previous past although I knew him very 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 well and I'd fished with him many times I was a bit put out about this but I was advised by the then secretary uh, not to cause waves because there were a lot of new members in the club while I'd been living abroad it expanded quite a lot a lot of new members didn't know me uh, but I was still a bit aggrieved about it and uh, a couple of years later I was able to come back to the UK for one or two reasons and I managed to attend one of the meetings of the National Anguilla Club. Uh, 
and uh, I'd been receiving uh, copies of minutes and meeting minutes and things and I wasn't too happy about some of the ways decisions were being made that were not fitting the constitution of the National Anguilla Club which I'd been working on many many years and, and revised many times so I knew it inside out but the present committee obviously didn't understand the constitution and its legal implications and were making decisions that they weren't happy with and I raised this at that meeting and it was not well received and nothing was actually said then but when I returned to France and I started getting minutes of that meeting and what we call our bulletin newsletter I was being slagged off quite a lot by various members because of what I'd said about the committee not being constitutional which I objected to and there was a bit of correspondence going back and forwards with the end result that uh, I was expelled from the National Anguilla Club on a charge of bringing the club into disrepute even though I'd never communicated with anybody outside the club on any of these issues. It was always internal so how I brought into disrepute I don't know but that is typical of the committee at that time just a bit of a story trumped it all up and said we don't want you anymore so I left. And as a consequence founded the European E-Langling Association. Well this was by consultation with a lot of my friends in the e-langling world who were all ex-members of the National Anguilla Club who left for various reasons but still had an interest in eels and following a bit of correspondence because by that time I was on the internet so I was able to communicate much quicker with everybody it was agreed next time I was in England which was uh, early 2003 we'd hold a meeting in Peterborough of all the, these people and people who weren't able to attend that meeting sent their thoughts on the issue and they all thought we should start a new group because of the way the National Anguilla Club had, had treated me particularly and some of these who left because of the way the direction the club was going anyway and so we had about 22 people who were interested in forming a new club which, which formed and was constituted and uh, it's been going ever since really, although the numbers have declined a bit, we're still very active and I'm very active obviously on behalf of it and behalf of eel anglers. So how then do the European Eel Angling Association and the National Anguilla Club differ? There's not a great deal of difference. When I was a member of the National Anguilla Club I represented it obviously on the National Association of Specimen Anglers in which I was chairman and then secretary and it was through the National Anguilla Club and the NASA, NASA, as we called it, I was representing it on various angling consultatives and I was representing eel anglers on the National Federation of Anglers regional committees. So they're getting very wide representation for eels and obviously I was doing pike as well and various other coarse fish species but I was primarily known as, as an eel representative. And um, very few other National Anguilla Club members was bothered to be that politically uh, active. It was active within the club and one or two did join the committee of the NASA and one or two might have gone once or twice to a, a regional consultative meeting or NFA meeting but very very little representation occurred after I left and as a European Eel Angling Association secretary and treasurer I've represented eel anglers continually. I've been on the uh, furnace in South Cumbia 
Fishery Consultative Association since 2004 and I'm currently Secretary and Treasurer of that and I'm also Secretary of the Milner District Angler Association and I'm also a member of the Furnace Angling Association in Barrow and many years ago, six seven years ago, I got them to adopt a rule where all eels had to be returned at a time. It wasn't legislation which it has become since because I've been negotiating with the Environment Agency and all its predecessors over many, many years about the situation regarding the decline in eel populations. And I'm still very, well, I was very active until the end of the National Federation of Anglers became part of the new Angling Trust. I'm a life member of the Angling Trust. I contact all the key officers of the National Angling Trust and uh, I'm also represented my consultative on the Northwest Anglers Fishery Consultative Council and also on the uh, Northwest Inshore Fishery Conservation Authority. So I'm still very active in representing particularly eels and eel anglers on quite a few committees, whereas National Anguilla Club doesn't seem to do anything at all apart from they've got quite a lot of members and they hold a lot of social activities. So that's the politics out of the way. Fine. Moving on now to the fish itself, here we have a species that even in fishery science circles is still shrouded in some degree of mystery. A fish openly shunned by the vast majority of regular course anglers with very little going for it in terms of widespread angler appeal or prestige. What then for you and other devotees like you is so attractive about the eel? It's a very mysterious fish. There's probably been more scientific papers written about the eel and its life cycle and various issues regarding the eel, elvers, larva, than any other fish species. It's a very well documented fish. It's got a very mysterious life cycle. There's been a few books written about its life cycle by people such as Burton and Moriarty of uh, Ireland and uh, lots of other people. If you go onto Google and, and put down eels, you will get millions and millions of references to eels but as far as the fishing side goes there's been very very few books on eels published there was the Herbert Jenkins one published many many years ago a small hardback book part of the, the How to Catch Them series and that was it until I wrote my Catch More Eels and I wrote Fishing for Big Eels and they were the only books available for quite a while although they were out of print and are still in great demand since then there's been a couple of other eel fishing books published but quite a few of them make references to what's in my book about the background of eels and uh, just to have different people writing about their views. Explain to us now a little bit more about the actual eel fishing itself. How do you go about deliberately targeting big eels and what would you consider the starting weight of a big eel to be? Yeah, originally when I started fishing for eels, a two-pound eel was a massive eel because where I lived in Fleetwood in Lancashire, although there were many eels, we never really saw any, any of any size until probably about 1965 when I was fishing the, the railway reservoir at Fleetwood, which is just west of water where I lived, and one afternoon I caught an eel of four pound and that eel itself virtually changed my attitude towards all kinds of fishing because the fishing tackle in the 60s was still quite limited and I was using a solid glass spinning rod at the time 
which I would have thought was quite adequate, and uh, a Mitchell 300 reel and six pound line, and I caught this eel, and it seemed to take forever to, to land. It, it just had no control of it whatsoever. It was a phenomenal, powerful fish, and eventually I did land it, and then the trouble started then once I got it on the bank because I was totally unprepared for dealing with a big eel. I dealt with smaller eels, but the power in this eel it, it was difficult to hold. And I wrote to Angling Times about it, and had a little paragraph published in Angling Times. And about three or four weeks later, I caught another one, and I was just absolutely amazed again how powerful it was. And that really just affected the rest of my life, that I wanted to go for big eels, and I've caught quite a few four-pounders since. I have had some monster eels on, um, but lost them in snags, and I've uh, organised fishings for eels on various waters, especially when I lived in Peterborough in the old brick pits, and had quite a few friends come over to fish for the big eels there, and they were amazed how powerful some of these eels were and I've seen size two hooks straightened out, I've had seen steel traces snapped off. Once you get these eels and they go into some of the snags you just can't get them out and there's some huge ones about and I've been very unfortunate in having had very big eels on but lost them. So my biggest eel is only four pound eight ounces although I have witnessed other eels caught up to seven pound two ounces. These are mainly caught in gravel pits with, with very little snags and the people were quite fortunate, especially using light tackle. For example, the record here, the 11 pound 2 ounces caught by Stephen Terry, who just caught from a small, very clear water by a young lad who was fishing for carp with associated tackle. And he was very, very lucky to land this eel, which is, lots of people have, have claimed bigger eels since, or seen bigger eels, but none has been actually authenticated. So to me, a big eel is anything over two pound, a monster eel, is something over four pound. A four pound eel is about 40 to 50 years old and uh, unlike carp which can get to 20 pound in just a few years, eels are very very slow growing. I know John Sidley when he caught a seven pound eel he killed it and had it aged because to age an eel you have to kill it and take the small bones out of the side where we call our ears in an eel's head and he has these scientifically analysed and they showed your seven pound eel was 70 years old. So eels are very slow growing, big eels are very old, and all big eels should be returned to the water. For anglers wanting to specialise in catching big eels, the next obvious question has to be how, where and when. As a, a big eel is an old eel, you obviously need an old water. The older the better, but you don't really want a water that's got a record of big eels because it, if any enthusiasts learn there's big eels in the water, then it just gets overfished. And one of the peculiarities about eels is once an eel is caught, it's virtually never heard of again. It's very, very rare for the same eel to be caught twice, unlike carp and pike, which have all probably got pet names, and they're caught that often. And barbel, they're all known, and as soon as a big fish is known, all the enthusiasts, or whatever you want to call them, descend on the water until the, the fish is caught that many times it dies. Unlike eels, there's only one recorded instance of, of an eel being caught more than once and that was uh, mentioned in my book Fishing for Big Eels about this eel at uh, uh, Three Gate Pit at Wem where it was caught three times. It was caught at six pounds, seven pound and just under eight pound and then it died to the, the third capture. But it was a very, very small pond and is mainly fished by 
young people and there's young people who caught this eel three times but sadly the third time it died but in the 70s and 80s with the, with the blessing of the environment agency at the well, one environment agency at that time probably um, just the um, East Anglia River Authority we uh, carried out a series of tagging on eels and no tag deal was ever caught never ever heard of them again so we just don't know that that's one of the mysteries about eels and eel fishing that once you know where big eels are being caught often when you get there nobody catches any you'll find any water with a history of big eels goes through a cycle where they seem to disappear I mean I know they do migrate that's a problem and all the same year class or big eel class can migrate together leaving all the big eels gone from the water what about day versus night choice of baits and bottom end gear in the National Anguilla Club from when it first started in the early 60s until about the late 1980s all the members carried out full analysis of every eel fishing session they carried out and all these questions were being asked what time did the session start, what time did it end, how many rods did you use, what sort of bait did you use, what time was an eel caught and there was sort of 50 different questions asked depending on your abilities to answer them about water temperature, cloud cover, wind direction, wind strength, was it raining, was it warm, what was the air temperature, even barometric pressure. A lot of statistical data was recorded over about 20 years and published annually and then this was analysed and published every five years and we also did a 10-year assessment of all the information and finally a 20-year and a lot of this was all summarised again in my book because I did carry out an awful lot of this statistical analysis of all the work carried initially started by Dr Terry Coulson who was very very keen on, on recording information about eels and this was carried on for about 20 years a, a pattern emerged obviously eels can be caught at any time day or night any time of the year on any bait but statistically the best time is at night when there's no moon and fishing with worm has caught the biggest eels. You mentioned briefly earlier the mysterious life cycle of the eel. I personally would think that more so than with any other species of freshwater fish, to understand eel fishing you first have to fully understand that life cycle. A remarkable and fascinating story which says so much about where, why and when to fish for the species. Yet at the same time, a story with many blank spaces still waiting for fishery scientists to fill them in. This is the problem again with eels, because for hundreds of years nobody ever found an eel full of spawn like you can with pike, perch and carp, any other normal fish species you find in the rivers. But eels were never ever found with spawning, which led to this theory they were spontaneously created by something magical or whatever. So that's added to the mystery of an eel, because they were never ever found with spawning them. They were never really found with developed sex organs as such. And it was only the people like Tesh, a scientist who carried out investigations, started off on the shores of Europe, and then working across the uh, North Atlantic, trying to sort of take samples of eels, because it was gradually realised they were being carried to the European continent on the Gulf Stream as elvers because elvers were very prolific in the lower reaches of rivers and estuaries and they seemed to gradually want to work their way upstream on the rivers so his idea was to work backwards 
from the Elvis reaching the shores, trying to net them through the Gulf Stream, and he found they got smaller and smaller. In fact, the Elvis we know as, as baby eels, as you moved off the continental shelf in the Gulf Stream, changed shape. They had a metamorphosis from like a leaf-shaped larva to the Elvis as we know it. So he started tracing these larva backwards across the Gulf Stream, and he eventually traced them to an area, what we might call the Bermuda Triangle, the Sargasso Sea in the Caribbean, or just off the Caribbean, and uh, he was able to determine that mature eels actually travel back to this area, the Sargasso Sea, and at a certain depth and water temperature, they spawned, and the adult eels then all died. So he was able to more or less say that um, the eel life cycle is the opposite of a salmon, but very similar. Salmon are spawn in fresh water, then they go out to sea to grow and develop. Then they turn to where the, the, more or less the river and beck where they were born to spawn, and then they normally die. It's the same with eels. Once the eels have spawned, the eggs develop into these tiny larvae, which gradually float up to near the surface of the Gulf Stream and are carried by the Gulf Stream, which takes them two to three years to reach the, all the shores of Europe and the Mediterranean, where they then metamorphosize once they found some brackish water into elvers, and majority of the male eels will stay around the coast and estuaries, whereas it's females who tend to migrate up rivers to feed and grow and mature, and then after a certain number of years the biological clock switches on and they migrate them back down to the sea and to the Sargasso Sea to complete the cycle. As they further part of that preparation to breed, they switch off completely from feeding and eventually even lose the ability to feed, which presumably is why big eels are not caught by sea anglers. This is true. Once the eels develop this maturity, it's a bit like women once they find themselves pregnant, they undergo quite a few body changes which are quite dramatic. The same thing with an eel, a big female eel, once its clock switches on, it stops feeding, its digestive system starts to deteriorate, it starts to develop more obvious sex organs as such, which are normally located just behind the bladder, as it's like furry fronds, and male and female sex organs are both developed there, and they're very distinct. The eyes of a female eel starts to get much bigger, the colour changes from a bronzy colour to black on top and silver underneath, so they're often called silver eels, and um, they tend not to feed except through habit. It's the same as salmon. When salmon are ascending rivers, they don't need to feed because they've got such a lot of body fat stored, but they do it by habit. That's why they get caught, because they see something that looks attractive to eat, so they'll eat it. And the same with eels. Some eels as they migrate and do get caught, but the majority of them do get trapped. Uh, there's On River 7, for example, there's lots of fixed stations where eels have to sort of channeled through these stations and they're caught on grills and things and it's, it was, it's been quite a big industry for many many years and sadly a lot of these mature eels which would otherwise go out to the Sargasso Sea and spawn get taken before they get that chance. Now as you alluded earlier eels are particularly slow growing fish putting on around a pound in weight for every 10 years lived which potentially makes them very long-lived fish. Why is it then that some stay on in freshwater for such a long time and grow, while others seem to mature and leave at a much earlier age? 
or do some eels simply become trapped with no means of escape, as is often suggested? There's quite a few options for eels to get bigger. One is a so-called prison water, and Professor Mariotti in Ireland has, has demonstrated this on some lakes that have been surrounded by housing estates with very little outflow or inflow of water produced eels to seven pound because there's just no way they can escape. And he carried out investigations for many years on this water and what he discovered was if a big female eel gets the urge to migrate, its body starts to change, so it starts looking for a way out of the water. And if it can't get out of the water, the clock stops and it just returns back to a, a normal feeding again. So it is obviously very, very uh, sensitive to being able to escape. The other thing, obviously, again, as with women, some women go through biological changes and develop hormones and body changes to mature sexually, to have children. With eels, it's exactly the same, and as the same with humans, some women never ever get this hormone development, so they're never able to have children or they might have problems with their ovaries, or other parts of the body, the womb. There's different parts of your body that might have problems preventing women from getting pregnant. And the same thing happens with an eel, like many fish species, because we get millions of eels, a certain percentage, for some reason, are sterile. They can't go through these changes. They don't develop the hormones that start changing the body. So they just carry on growing. That's their lifestyle then, they just to keep on growing and growing and growing but you know, they can do this for 70 years, whereas the average female eel normally migrates between sort of five to seven years in fresh water, which makes them about eight years old. Understanding eel biology, probably more so than any other coast fish species, can have crucial implications in finding and catching large specimens. So taking account of the many and varied options for bodies of fresh water in the UK, in percentage terms, how do eels usually distribute themselves once they've left the estuaries and headed inland? If you're fishing near the coast in estuaries and lower reaches of rivers, you're far more likely to be catching small male eels. Male eels very rarely grow above a pound. All the small eels you tend to find in lower reaches of rivers and estuaries are males. If you want a really big eel, you have to go upstream to uh, waters, that hold a good head of food, either crustaceans or small fish, where other fish species breed prolifically, so there's plenty of small fish, even frogs, tadpoles, any food available. The more food available, obviously, the bigger that the eels can potentially go. So you want an old water, one that provides a lot of hiding places for eels, either very, very weedy or lots of snags, underwater obstructions. Gravel pits are starting to produce some very big eels now since the gravel is used in, in building the motorways. These are now developing very, very rapidly and holding a good head of eels, big eels. Although, as I've said, once an eel's caught, it's very rarely seen again. But uh, a big water can hold a, a fair number of big eels. And I have known members of the Anguilla Club who've caught substantial numbers of big eels from water. Then that water seems to stop producing big eels. Some waters might never produce a big eel. I fished the Shropshire Mears many, many times, and these are obviously millions of years old. And uh, the biggest eel is only about five pound or something, maybe six pound. Maybe because the amount of food is not 
available because of the size. It's very difficult to generalise with a very big water. I mean, I fish uh, the Lake District, um, Coniston Water and Windermere, and I've still yet to see a big eel out of any of those waters. But I've also fished small waters, and the brick pits of Peterborough particularly produce some quite big eels. Um, not monsters. If you go into the top 50 list, uh, you'll find a lot of the the big eels that have been recorded in recent years tend to come from some of the gravel pits, some of the, the larger gravel pits. But like with any fish species, you can actually educate eels to feed in a certain area by ground baiting. Quite a few successful eel anglers ground bait areas on a regular basis to attract eels into that area. I mean, you attract other fish species as well. But um, you can try and use baits just for eels but the trouble with, with eels is they will eat anything. So quite a lot of the very big eels have been caught by carp anglers using fish or meat-based boilies. But the trouble with that is that they often bite through the terminal links. So it's a question of uh, if you want to use nice smelly boilies is to use uh, stronger line or, or wire traces. Uh, but eels uh, can be very, very sensitive to wire. It's a question of balance, whether you'd rather risk losing an eel with a hook in its mouth and potentially killing it or using a steel trace and maybe not getting the runs. Now I am no eel hunter but I am aware through background reading over the years that it takes a particular kind of dedication to become a successful big eel specialist. What's common knowledge is that anybody can catch a big eel and quite a few of the big eel catches are one-offs. Um, the people that interest me particularly are people who have had several big eels not just one. To catch one is a lifetime achievement. To catch two or three really big eels takes an awful lot of dedication. And I was fortunate to know quite a few very dedicated big eel anglers like David Holman and um, John Sidley, for example. And both of these fished just for eels, particularly in the summer. In the winter they might go on to pike and perch and things like that. But they were dedicated eel anglers in such every moment they could fish, they fish for eels. John Sidley used to do it full time. He would find a water, I won't name the waters as fish, but they were mentioned in my book. He fished these waters and he'd just live on the bank week in, week out, right through the summer. He was absolutely dedicated. And I've known other anglers doing exactly the same sort of things for, for carp. If you want to be a successful carp angler, you've got to be dedicated enough to go and sit on the bank of waters that are known to hold big carp and eventually you will catch big carp and the same with very big bream people will spend weeks at a time fishing for bream and the same thing with eels if you want to catch an eel obviously you've got to have an idea in your mind that the water you want to fish has got the potential to hold a big eel for example i fish kingfisher lake near roundel which is a private commercial water, and it's a very old water, and it's near the River Neen. And I said to the owner, I said, this water has got the potential for big eels. He says, no, Brian, this water has never produced a big eel. And then I went on a fishing weekend there with members of the uh, NASA, and one of the members, Kevin Richardson, caught a seven-pound, two-ounce eel, and the owner was absolutely gobsmacked. He says, I didn't think the eels are that size in the water. And I said, oh, no, nobody does, because you never know, because they're very, very hard to catch. And Kevin actually caught it while I was fishing for tench, very near the bank with a tench rig and not very heavy tackle. But Kevin is an ex-anglical member. I've known him 
for many, many, many years, even when he was a teenager. And he's always known about eels, and he knew how to handle eels, so he was very successful in, in landing this, and he was, that was his fish of a lifetime. And uh, this is the thing, really. You need to be very dedicated, you need to know what you're doing, you need to fish a water that you think's got potential, you've got to use appropriate tackle, and you need an awful lot of patience. I have fished many, many, many sessions on many waters that I believe they hold very big eels. I have been lucky to, to hit big eels, but unlucky to lose them in snags. Um, but it's a compromise to find eels. You often fish near snags and take that risk. It always saddens me if I lose an eel and it's got a hook in it because I feel that eel might die, which I don't want it to do. What are your thoughts on the current obsession with carp fishing? Is this attracting anglers away from specialising in other species, including catching eels? Well, over the years, I have known hundreds of very, very capable anglers who fish for eels. But most of them, I would say about 90%, eventually switch to other species which are far, far easier, and far easier to get a big fish of the species and to make a name. For example, when I knew John Watson, the pike angler, he was a dedicated eel angler and would spend many, many, many nights each year fishing for eels. And he did catch a few four-pounders and five-pounders, but the big ones really eluded him, and so he switched to pike and enabled a big reputation as a pike angler and for other species. And every other, what I would call, big-name angler who'd been in the Angler Club eventually leaves to find fame fishing for other species. A lot of the big names that I've grown up with over the years started off as eel anglers and then went off to something which is far, far easier. Can we now turn our attention to the plight of the eel and its recent dramatic decline? What's going on there? In the early 70s, up to about 1973, it was common in the Anguilla Club to kill every eel you caught to remove these otterless small bones from the skull so that the eel could be aged and we could look at the sex of the eel, what it had been eating and lots of, of internal research being carried out by people who knew what they were doing. But we was gradually becoming aware in the mid-70s that there was a problem with eel populations which seemed to be getting lower and waters that weren't so prolific just seemed to not have eels in them anymore. We suspected it was due to eel trapping at the time, and so we started campaigns. I started one, John Sidley started one, other people started one about putting eels back, and we had stickers in cars, and every time we did a conference we had posters saying, please put eels back. And uh, we was actually be being confounded by people like Dick Walker, who says the only good eel is a dead eel. So we was getting lots of negative publicity for, uh, for the, well we wasn't, the eels were getting negative publicity about people saying uh, how destructive they were, you catch an eel, it destroys your tackle, just kill it and throw it on the bank. And we was trying to work against that for many years. And we was actually talking in the early 70s about there was going to be a serious decline in eels because they're being too commercially exploited. There was having elver eating competitions at Frampton on Seven, where to see you could eat a kilo of an eel the fastest, which wasn't very good for eel populations. If that same thing was happening with pike or tench or carp, there'd be an outcry. But because it was an eel, it was accepted. Eels were also being used as bait for pike fishing, for tote fishing, and there was a market. Lots of fishing tackle dealers were selling frozen eels for as bait. 
which if people said, oh, let's have some frozen pike as bait or frozen carp, there'd be an outcry, but because it was an eel, it wasn't held in very high regard, so it was an uphill struggle. Towards the late 1970s and early 80s, it was getting more evident that the population of eels were declining, and the National Rivers Authority at the time was starting to listen to us, and I've got quite a few contacts with the National Rivers Authority who were looking at population surveys, but as the yield was still held in, in low esteem, not very much money was available to spend on it, as against barbel and carp and pike and other species. And we just kept the pressure on and kept the pressure on within the National Anguilla Club until probably the mid-1990s, when even the commercial eel fishermen, the exploiters of eels, were complaining about the low numbers of eel populations and even they started to go out of business. The elver fishermen were complaining there was not many elvers coming in. The uh, adult eel exploiters were saying there's not many adult eels going down the major rivers anymore. And so the, the Environment Agency at that time started to listen and they carried out their own investigations, scientifically based, and started to produce what they called an eel management strategy. And uh, it was also becoming evident that it wasn't just this country, it was the whole of Europe was starting to experience a massive decline in eel populations, mainly again through complaints from commercial eel fishermen who were still catching too many eels and killing them, or sending them to Japan, which is one of the main markets. The elvers were sent there, mature eels were sent there, and the price was starting to go very, very high. It was, at the time, amazing to find that a kilo of elvers was selling for three or four hundred pounds, whereas 10, 20 years ago, you might have got 50 pounds for them. So that, again, as they got more exploited, and the numbers dropped, the price rose, so they were getting exploited even more. It was a vicious circle. The higher the price went, the more people went fishing for them. Not to uh, sporting-wise, but to catch them to sell. Uh, you could sell them to fishmongers and get £5 a pound. They're starting to become more expensive than cod or salmon in fishmongers. And so more people started fishing to kill them and take them off the waters. And it became quite serious in Europe uh, and uh, CFAS, DEFRA and all the major bodies responsible for the aquatic environment were getting concerned and it was in the early 2000s that the freshwater eel was put on the endangered list and eventually, just a few years ago, the Environment Agency as part of the eel management plan brought out a new regulation saying that all eels must be returned to the water unless you have a specific permit to remove them either for commercial purposes or scientific purposes and that's the present situation where any angler catching eel must return it to the water anybody caught with an eel in their possession can be quite seriously fined and their fishing tackle confiscated What about other factors outside of simple exploitation? Obviously the exploitation part I've just been covering that there's still heavily in demand as a food source in the Far East, but uh, it has been discovered that there is a quite a serious uh, infection in eels near the swim bladder, which affects the swim bladder of this uh, parasite, 
and this affects how an eel can move vertically in water and this will affect it when it wants to migrate back to the Sargasso Sea because they do spawn at quite serious depths uh, and if the swim bladder is affected they won't be able to get down that level to spawn. Also in the last 30-40 years there have been far more pollutants going into our water systems through improved sewage systems more water is being treated and passed into rivers but the, a lot of the chemicals in those waters are not being removed. There's lots of female hormones for example from birth pills other kind of medication people take gets passed through the body into the water system which isn't removed so the, the river system has become quite a severe cocktail of uh, byproducts if you like of uh, all the medication people take plus there are industrial pollutants there's new chemicals being used all the time which get into the water systems and for example lots more recreation boats are being used on the water systems and these are often uh, painted on the hulls to stop weed growth and other problems and this is other chemicals which get into the system which can possibly have the potential to be toxic to eels. On climate change because the, the sea is slowly getting warmer this is affecting the direction of the Gulf Stream as we've discovered through the way we get getting these wet and windy summers rather than nice warm summers at the moment it may go in cycles but at the moment the Gulf Stream might slightly change so that the elvers aren't being carried to the shores of Europe as in the quantities that there were 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago 100 years ago there was millions of elvers coming ashore almost every point in Europe now there are areas which just never see elvers anymore so the summit that is changing dramatically the life cycle of the eel. And I suppose that also includes access and migration obstructions. One of the problems of industrialisation over the years has been to build weirs and locks for recreation on rivers. Many other obstructions, natural and man-made, occur on rivers. On River Thames alone there are 1,800 obstructions to the upward migration of eels. These are being dealt with by building sort of access up the uh, weir or obstruction for eels using things like um, gutters lined with bristles so that water will run down these and allow eels to, elvers particularly, to travel up them. But it's a long, slow process and it's expensive. Also in South Cumbria where we have tidal locks because of uh, the outflow from Windermere and Coniston goes through the Crake and the Leven. They have tidal gates to stop surges of tidal water, seawater coming up them. Once these close, they've formed a barrier to elvers or eels migrating and the South Cumbria Rivers Trust has been building sort of little flaps, tidal flaps on these tidal gates which allow the eel to, to enter and leave through these small tidal flaps. Again, it's very expensive, it's very time consuming and it's a slow process. So there's just a whole list of different things which are affecting the life cycle of the eel, either the inward migration of elvers or the outward migration of mature eels. And it's having a detrimental effect on the population of eels, which has crashed at least 95% in the last 20 years. That being the case, could the European eel very easily soon become extinct? 
I don't think we are ever going to reverse it. I think the commercial exploitation will carry on until the very last eel has been taken and there's just no more eels to be taken and it's a sad fact that this is what can happen. With salmon and trout and most other species of coarse fish, fish farming is, is very prolific but very little research has actually been carried out in this country or money put into any form of fish farming of eels because of their life cycle it's very difficult to get eels to maturity and even if you get the maturity to get the, the larva to develop to an adult size it's far far more difficult to improve the numbers of eels than any other fish species and it's also a, a sad fact that this is happening in other areas of the world as well in other eel populations because there's five main centres in the world of eel populations and they're all suffering a sad decline, mainly in other areas due to the commercial exploitation. Any indications on time scale? No, because it, it's a, a negative exponential downward curve. That uh, the biggest population crash probably happened about ten years ago, but the population will carry on decreasing and decreasing and decreasing despite anglers' best efforts and best scientific efforts until it's no longer viable and that you know, eel anglers will have to perhaps stop fishing for eels. By all accounts then, a species very much in crisis whose angling potential looks to be rapidly ebbing away. Yet within my lifetime, at many locations you'd be pestered by them and at others you could virtually catch them to order. But not any longer which is what's so important about making recordings such as this, despite the technical difficulties, with people who have some genuine first-hand experience of something which could very well be confined to the annals of history, and still within my lifetime. My thanks then to Brian Crawford for giving up a couple of hours of his holiday to put the record straight. <laughs>